You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. We're very fortunate this morning to have three what I would call professional politicians with us. I'm not sure whether they would describe themselves that way. Um, But I'm going to give them a chance each just to introduce themselves. Um, So, I feel a bit like Cilla Black on Blind Date. Contestant number one. (laughs) Um, So guys, I'm sure lots of people know you already, but they may not know about what you do. Um, or about the things that engage you. So um, I'm going to start the other end with Claire, but what is it that you do um, and how did you get into politics? Uh, So I'm Claire Reynolds um, and I run Labour Women's Network, which is the um, women's movement within uh, fighting for gender equality within the Labour Party. Um, And I got into politics really as a student... Activist. I actually t- I went to university in Lancaster, uh, and I turned up on day one at my freshers' fair, and immediately made a beeline for the Labour club there, knowing I had Labour values, but not really actually understanding it's a membership movement. You can join it. You can be a part of it. Um, and I'd been a sort of typically kind of ranty, feisty teenager, quite exercised about issues like animal rights, uh, LGBT rights. Uh, but really, it was from that moment that I sort of became part of a much bigger movement of political activism. And then I became chair of that Labour Club. And then I became National Secretary of Labour Students, which um, is a sort of funny role half in and half out of um, the Labour Party head office. Uh, And then I did some other things and I worked in the private sector and I worked in the charitable sector and also worked in 10 Downing Street uh, as a European advisor to first Tony Blair and then Gordon Brown. You were a European advisor? Yes, as you can see, since I vacated that role, it's all gone horribly wrong. Um, and then I moved back to my native north uh, and uh, had a family and um, became a local councillor for four years in a very kind of, um, where we live is very sort of white working class, low skilled, uh, post-industrial economy. The people who were, who were my closest competitors in my ward elections were UKIP. Uh, so I think that possibly gives me a, a particular uh, viewpoint and understanding of some of the kind of social divisions that we have going on at the moment. Uh, yeah, that's me. Thank you. Keith, same question to you. Thank you. My name is Keith Prince. I'm the Assembly Member for Havering and Redbridge. And uh, I dare say some of you won't know what an Assembly Member is, but I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, my first move into politics was a friend of mine used to go along to the Young Conservatives back in the day and uh, he dragged me along to an event and I ended up getting involved with the Young Conservatives. Within that organisation I rose to the heady heights of treasurer of the Greater London Young Conservatives (laughs) and and then uh, I got involved in local politics and I've been a councillor in the London Borough of Havering. I then went on to become a councillor in the London Borough of Redbridge and ended up as the leader of the London Borough of Redbridge. And eventually, I found myself uh, being elected as the Assembly Member for Havering and Redbridge. The London Assembly is a little-known body that works with the Mayor of London. The Mayor of London has all the executive power, 
He has the power to make all the decisions and spend all the money. And below him are 25 assembly members, 14 of which represent constituencies and 11 of which are London-wide. And if you've got three hours, I'll explain to you the complicated election <laughs> system, but not now. However, that means there's 25 of us. There are 12 Labour, 8 Conservatives, 2 UKIP, 2 Greens and 1 Liberal Democrat. Uh, and that is a kind of PR system that they get elected under. And our job is to hold the Mayor of London to account. We are a scrutiny body, so once a month roughly we have a meeting with the Mayor of London and we hold him to account. We ask him loads of questions and sometimes he answers them. And then uh, he will bring out policies and we will scrutinise those and we will make recommendations to him as to how he may improve those uh, policies and sometimes he takes that on board. And in addition to that, we also have our own investigations. So you may have seen recently we did our investigation into Crossrail and all the issues around how it was at the very last minute we found out that Crossrail was going to be delayed, although there was clear evidence that delay was going to be the case for many, many months before then. I'll leave it at that. Amazing. So, so far, we can ask Claire about Europe and we can ask Keith about London. This is going well. Candice. Hi, everyone. My name's Candice. I'm a local councillor in the London Borough of Hounslow. My ward is called Hanworth. Um, so we're really out west. We, we travel in for church because we love this church. Um, I am a lead member currently for adult social care and health. Um, I've been a councillor since 2014, so um, in my second term as a councillor. Um, what got me into politics? Uh, I only joined like, the Labour Party in 2010, but if I think about what got me into politics, it really goes back quite a long way. So from um, a really young age, I'd, I had a sense, quite a strong sense of justice and social justice. The first thing I can kind of remember was um, seeing stuff on the news around um, the famine in Ethiopia and um, really sort of caring about that and not understanding how we weren't able to help. And I actually wrote a letter to Jim will fix it at the time. Um, and luckily my mum didn't send it. Um, <laughs> and um, I was just saying, can't we fly a plane and instead of people have like some water-shaped um, sort of canisters that are the same weight as people and, you know, just fly some water. I just didn't understand how, if we had water, they couldn't have water. So, um, and then through school I was pretty much a teacher pleaser, teacher's pet, and unless I noticed some sort of injustice, that was the only time I ever really got in trouble. So I once um, challenged a teacher about, um, he put one of my friends, well, he wasn't even my friend, he was because he was one of the sort of naughty kids in the class, so, so I wouldn't be playing with the naughty children. But um, he put his painting in the bin, like said that his artwork was not good, and I sort of spoke up, and I guess I tried to form an argument that art is subjective, and... Um, and that he, how dare he put the <laughs> painting in the bin. And, and it's quite funny, actually, because my mum taught... Well, she was um, a support um, role in that school for, like, the next 30 years um, from, the school, from when we were there, and she just retired last year. And this teacher, who I... She's good friends with him now, um, so I see him sort of periodically. He, he kind of sort of was ch chatting to me and trying to say that he has really changed since his like, formative years of being a teacher, and I think he sort of can remember some of those interactions, but, um, so it's quite an interesting conversation. But, um, but yeah, then other issues that I was aware of as a child was like homelessness, and we had a really great youth leader who um, sort of 
just made us aware of sort of social action and we would go and like take soup and sandwiches to the homeless people in Leeds that was um another sort of opportunity for me to kind of recognize that there was um inequality and injustice going on in in the UK before that I'd really only noticed stuff around the world um and then it wasn't until I moved to Salford where I, I did uni at Manchester but I lived in Salford and I was part of a youth project called Eden, where we, we just basically lived in a, a really deprived area. That was probably the first time I was aware of real um, relative poverty in this country, and that's where sort of my heart for kind of issues in the UK came from. Um, um, I met Ben and moved to London at the end of uni, and we've sort of lived on the edge of a, a, a similar kind of council estate, and I've got a real heart for that area, and we've been involved in a lot of youth work since then. And it was really just feeling like I was making quite a difference on a really small one-to-one basis, meeting people and families and getting to know them and feeling like I was helping in some way, but recognizing like patterns of sort of the structural issues that were people were struggling with that made me sort of want to do something more about it. And that's when I um, decided to, well, I joined the Labour Party in 2010 when the coalition government came in and um, became a councillor sort of soon after that. That's my route into politics. Brilliant, thank you. I think, I think we've heard a, a little bit of a taste of the answer to this, but I asked everybody if there was one issue they'd put top of their election manifesto to talk with their neighbour about what that would be. Um, for, for all of you, is there, is there one thing that keeps you engaged in politics? Because I guess sometimes the jobs you do are rewarding, sometimes they're not, um, sometimes they're hard work. Is there, is there one issue for you that is the issue that keeps you engaged? So I'm in quite a happy place at the moment, which is that my job as National Officer of Labour Women's Network is basically very closely aligned to my primary passion, which is feminist politics, the battle for gender equality um, and liberation politics more widely, because what, what kind of world are we that your gender, your sexuality, your race, your class is still so very determinant on your life chances, your life outcomes, what work you will do, what role you will play at home, the extent to which public policies will affect you. Uh, So at work I campaign within the Labour Party on things like uh, trying to get proper parental leave in place for councillors and MPs. um, is, Is Duncan here today? Um, Duncan Haynes, who uh, was a Liberal Democrat uh, MP up until the 2015 election, his little boy who's part of this church congregation was the first ever baby to walk through the voting uh, lobbies in the House of Commons and our youngest child, Seth, was the, was the second and now everybody's doing it because this church breeds change makers. Um, but I was a councillor um, with and had you know, I have, we have four children in total. Two of those I had during my term of office. It was incredibly difficult to, you know, play a full and active part in public life with... I mean, I would have to... There was no provision in place for maternity leave at all, so I just chaired meetings, sometimes angry, hostile public meetings with, you know, whilst breastfeeding a baby. There would usually be children playing in the corner throughout meetings. It would, you know, we had loads of tea time meetings in the north. It was all very unfamily friendly and to the detriment of women playing particularly a full part in public life. Uh, so Labour Women's Network campaigns on that and we campaign on the Me Too and sexual harassment crisis and say that, you know, 
politics, political parties, public life, we have particular problems with our culture that lead to that being prevalent and we just have to get better systems to deal with it and we have to develop our cultures in ways which reduce it happening in the first place. Uh, and we campaign on stuff like the abuse of women in politics because, frankly, at the moment, you know, one of the things we do is I, we train about 100 women a year for public office and we've been very successful in doing that. About half of the Labour women MPs were trained by us. But we have to tell them they're going into it now knowing you will have to be resilient, you will have to have self-care strategies because a completely unacceptable but sadly unavoidable part of your job if you put your head above the power pit as a woman in politics, will be death threats, rape threats, incessant abuse every time you share an opinion on Twitter. And we are campaigning to change that. But you know, whilst we're doing that, still live in the patriarchy. So we have to ready women to support one another and, and survive that. But more widely, social mobility. I mean, it, it, my manifesto pledge would just be to plough a significant chunk of government resource into early years because... Now, in our borough, by the age of two, uh, in, in Thameside, in Manchester, a third of kids are not meeting expected development levels, So, you know, which is an outrage. Imagine being disadvantaged by the time you're blowing out your second birthday cake just by your early life experiences and the resources which are not available to you. Um, and, and more widely, you know, when children get to school at the age of five, there's an 18-month development gap. So, you know, some are still in nappies and pushchairs and using bottles, and some are busy writing and talking in full sentences. And that has such an impact on the jobs that people will go on to do, the contribution they'll go on to make. Like, we should, nobody should be written off before they've graduated from primary school. So I would plough all our research into early years. I'm going to tell I'm going to thank you, Claire. That's really interesting. It's, um, it's great to hear people speak passionately um, about things that are important to you. Um, I'm going to, if you two want to come back on, on your manifesto pledges, feel free to butt in in a moment. But I just want to ask a different question, um, which is, um, I don't know whether these kind of conversations are very common in churches that I think... Um, I think when it comes to the specifics of politics, not the kind of big general things, but the specifics of, of why we hold this view or that view and why we think this particular policy is, is the right policy. Um, most people would, um, would say that faith and um, politics aren't necessarily a good mix, that you should never talk about religion and politics in polite company, um, all those sorts of things. So do you... Um, do you do you think that it's important that we can have um, conversations like this? And I guess for you, um, if you hold quite strong political beliefs, how do those match with your, um, if you like, your faith beliefs? How do those two things work together for you? Keith, I'm going to ask you. Well, thank you very much. Of course, um, I wouldn't agree that church and politics don't go together. Uh, I do try to walk that very thin tightrope. Uh, I suspect probably where that thought comes from uh, is something to do with um, what Paul, when he wrote to the Second Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. And part of his teaching, as I understand it, was that we should not be fully engaged with the world as Christians because we can be polluted by it. I think it's a bit of a simplification, but 
along those lines. But myself, I, I draw on what Jesus said in Matthew 5:16, when, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that, I think, really is where I start from. I think it's very important as a politician, and I'm not talking about a particular political party, but as a politician that I set a standard and that my behaviour in public is always one where people can see that I am representing Jesus and the Christian faith. And I think it's very, very important that Christians do become more involved in politics. It is a fact that other other faiths are better organised in areas and are better organised in politics and they are having a big influence. I think that's a good thing that we have a political system that is very representative of all races, creeds, colours, faiths, but I think we ha there is a danger that Christians could fall behind and I think we have to make sure that we are involved in politics and that our beliefs, our standards are part of the system. Thank you. Candice, if you were, is there any connection for you between your one manifesto issue, the thing that keeps you engaged, and your faith journey? Yeah, I mean, I feel that they're so intrinsically linked. Like, I feel like my sort of sense of justice comes from, you know, God in me. Um, and I, I was also going to just say something, a passage I found in the Bible that feels like to me that it's a call for all of us to be involved in politics, whether that is sort of like more formal politics or, you know, using whatever power and agency and influence you have in all the areas of your life to speak up for others. But um, there's a verse that says um, in Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. I always get emotional. <laughs> Um, plead the case of the wid widow. And I know when I first sort of was understanding this passage, um, again, it was a, a youth leader that sort of talked about, you know, well, who are the fatherless? Who are the widows? And, and in this context, the widows would have been the women who, because they'd lost their husbands, would have no access to, to money and finance. And, and so they would essentially become destitute if it wasn't for others around them. Um, so for me, the, you know, the widows today are the, sort of the working poor, the refugees, the homeless, lone parents, um, and the fatherless are, you know, are looked after children and people who, for whatever reason, are not able to be with their, their birth families or they have physically lost parents. Um, so, so, yeah, I just feel like this is something that we all have to do, and, and, and whether that is, you know, just in the relationships around us, the people we know, the, the mums at school, the people, our work colleagues, um, or if it's, you know, campaigning and lobbying and petitioning, I feel like this is something that, as church, we are, we are called to do. So, yeah, I don't find a tension between um, being a Christian and being in politics. Brilliant. Um, I guess in a congregation of our size, if I asked, I'm not going to, but if I asked people to put their hand up for different political parties and which ones they supported, then I would hope we might have a mix of um, political views um, amongst us. Actually, for most of us, uh, we, live in, we live in bubbles, don't we? We often, um, we know people, we make friends with people who think the same way that we do. Um, we 
follow people on social media that think the way that we do. And so, so our sense of difference in the world isn't always, um, yeah, isn't always very keen. But, but I would think in a group like this, there would be a range of political opinions. And, and to my right are a range of political opinions. So um, I wanted to ask you a bit about how we disagree and how we disagree well and why that's important. Claire. Well, actually, I think it's a challenge to any congregation to ensure that you do have a mix of political opinions within it. I mean, one of the, I feel like God has drawn me to this church because one of the things I'd always struggled with in other contexts was, you know, how can, you know, sometimes my feminist and inclusionist politics weren't necessarily reflected in what I was hearing on a, on a Sunday morning, and that felt at odds. So, um, I think that this is an amazing church, but, you know, we should have leavers and remainers in the congregation. We should have people, you know, who represent all political views because that's what we find out there in the community. But, and I should, I'm just, one further qualification is we have a lot of fights within political parties <laughs> as well as with each other. Um, <laughs> And indeed, my other half, Johnny, is the chair of a, a socialist society called Christians on the Left, and they have, they have, because we have to have a campaign called Disagree Well to remind people within the Labour Party that we you know, may feel very passionately about our actually not very disparate opinions on, on subjects, but we need to be nice to each other with inside parties as well as um, externally. But some practical things, I think counting to 10 goes a very long way. Like we live in a very reactionary age, particularly maybe counting to 60 before you tweet on social media. This is a lesson I have to remind myself every day. You see something, somebody says something, it outrages you and you want to react and you basically have a choice at that moment whether you ratch tensions up or whether you be a person who tries to calm them down and draw people together. So count to ten, make friends. Like, actually I have friends in the Conservatives, I have friends in the Liberal Democrats, I have friends in the Green Party, I have friends who don't give two hoots about politics and wouldn't understand why on earth I'm devoting my life to it or talking about it on a Sunday morning when I could be having a lion. Um, but Actually, it's about remembering that we're all human and believing in human decency. We're all made in the face of Jesus. I genuinely believe that Keith is a public servant who wants, you know, I assume that you go into this because you want to do good. We may disagree on economic policy or social policy, but you have to remind yourself that, you know, that your opponent is a human too and believe, have faith in their, their motivations and, you know, take a step back sometimes. Thanks. You guys want to add anything? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I start from the position that I believe the vast, vast majority of people who come into politics do so for the right reasons, because they want to help their local community, want to help people to have a better life. And that goes across, with a few exceptions, all political parties. I really do believe that. And so when I'm dealing with colleagues from other parties, I always try to listen to what they have to say and I think that the fundamental thing is respect you have to respect the fact that they have a right to a different view you have to listen carefully to what they say but also respect them as a human and, and speak and talk to them with respect it, it may not be a popular view but I believe in listening. I think it's very important. My, my background is as a salesperson, and one of the things they teach you as a salesperson is that you have two ears and one mouth, and that's the 
proportion in which you should use them. And you would be absolutely amazed how much you can learn from someone of who you would think has a different view to you. And that can be very educative. And often you find that when you sit down with them, as indeed we did today before this meeting, there's a whole chunk of areas where we actually agree. Uh, and again, as I say, we may not approach things in quite the same way, but I do believe that the outcomes we're looking for are very similar. And that's what we should embrace is, is that similarity, that common denominator. And I think it would be much better if politicians across all the parties work to build on those common goals and aims rather than using the few things that do divide us in order to create tension. Thank you. Now, we did have a very interesting conversation before the service, um, which kind of brings me on to my last question for you, because uh, we got talking about Brexit and um, what we thought might happen next or should happen next. So, um, just because it wouldn't be right to dodge that question this morning. Um, I wonder, um, whatever happens next, whether we remain um, in the EU or whether we leave, how we leave, when we leave, um, my question is, do you think we've learnt anything in the last two years? Um, and if so, what is it? And I guess whatever comes next in, in terms of the political institutions that we do or don't belong to, how do you think we move forward from where we are um, as a society? So, um, yeah, so what have we... What have we learned, or maybe what should we learn from the last couple of years, and um, how do we move forward? Um, I think I feel what, what we've learned um, is a really sort of sad truth that we are a lot more divided than, as a nation than uh, maybe we thought we were, and we haven't come along as far as, as in our progress around some of our sort of equality agendas. And um, so, so yeah, I, I feel that that's a, a sad thing, but I think it's really important that at this stage in history we've discovered that. Um, and going forward, I think we need to just work really hard on how we sort of bring people together and how we work much harder to understand where people are coming from and you know a little bit like what we've just talked about how how we I don't think we have disagreed well as a nation so how you know where do we go from here in um, trying to understand better why people have made decisions that they've made made and um, how we can find more common ground really I think that's what I feel. Claire you've got an interesting perspective about where we might go next in this process as well as what, what we might look for as a society. You can pick either of those. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I would say one of the, I absolutely agree with Candice that the biggest learning from all of this is around divisions, and that's where our, our focus should go in, in future as to how we heal those. But I think we've learned that referenda don't work <laughs> very well. They are a terrible form of decision-making. You ask a silly question and you'll get a silly answer, first of all. Um, you then decide whether or not you wanted to listen to that answer or you should have asked the question in, in, in the first place after you've asked it. Um, and for that reason, I am 
I, am, I wasn't on the march yesterday. I fully respect there will be lots of people in that room that were, and from a Christian perspective, you have to say there is something pretty moving about the images of a million people rising up and having their their say and feeling so passionately and walking so peacefully um, about a subject. But for me, I am very concerned that another referendum would increase, not decrease, division, would not get the answer that the people asking for it are expecting to hear necessarily, uh, would not answer the, the question um, in the sense that whatever the outcome of it is, this is clearly not the end of the debate. If we voted again to leave, we still haven't really answered how. You know, if we vote to remain, we can't possibly expect that all of those people who won first time around, you know, just know their voice is no longer valid and that's that. And whew, wasn't that silly and move on that, you know, that people are going to carry this with them for the rest of their uh, lives. And they should because we believe in universal suffrage and we believe that everybody's voice is valid regardless of, you know, whether they have a degree and whether they live in a metropolitan area uh, or not. Um, and personally... My dear, I, our friend Joe Cox was killed partly in the context of the last referenda. The tensions that rise up in those contexts are, you know, are really, really dangerous. And I think we have to decide whether that's a, you know, whether another one would be any better, whether it would serve any true purpose. Having said that, deal is rubbish. No deal is disastrous. And the Prime Minister seems to have turned into a hate preacher. So we may be being boxed into a corner where that is the only <laughs> rational step forward. But I, I, for me, I'm really hesitant about it. Thank you. Keith? Well, uh, I do agree with uh, some of what my colleagues here have said, uh, certainly around the division and so on. But the one thing I think everyone has relearnt, although I wouldn't have thought it was a lesson you'd need to learn, is that you can't negotiate from a position of weakness. And um, I think that the way the negotiations were started were from a very weak position and got weaker. That having been said, uh, I don't want to go on about the people's vote. I don't believe there should be one. But if there is, we'll have three, five or seven because you can't have the best of two. And the real challenge for any government will be after this is bringing the nation back together. I wouldn't have said that before Brexit the, the nation was harmonious, but what we have seen has really brought great division. And I, th and I think if there were, I think Claire very articulately put, if, if there were to be another referendum, that could really ramp up tension. And I, I could see some very nasty outcomes if we go down that route. It's a very dangerous thing to do, I think, to, to actually have a plebiscite and then to ignore the outcome of that or say we'll keep having them until we get the right answer. I think it's very dangerous. Thank you. I'm going to interrupt because I can tell Candice would like to come back on that, but we're going to be... I'm going to give you a chance to ask your questions. Um, so if you have a piece of paper and you've got a question in mind, then scribble that down. Um, and then we'll just take a couple of questions, but these guys will be around after the service, so feel free to come and talk to them. While you're thinking of your question, I'm just going to say thank you to you guys. It's, um, we should do this more often, shouldn't we? We should sit and talk about um, things that really matter. And um, I think as a church, we're really fortunate to have you guys and others who are really engaged 
Um, we, we grew, we're all engaged in politics one way or another, but I think we're really fortunate that um, we have um, people who are doing really tough jobs um, and are willing to get really involved um, in our political institutions. So I hope that we can pray for you um, and support you um, in the work that you're doing. Um, so I'm gonna, we're going to come round and collect any questions that you have, and then while we figure out what questions to ask, we'll sing a song. So if you have a question, please hold it up, and someone will come and collect it. There's a few over here. Fantastic. We are um, rapidly running out of time this morning, so we're not going to get through all of the questions, but I thought it was interesting. Out of um, This is my bundle of non-Brexit-related questions. This is my bundle of Brexit-related questions. I think there's um, about four times as many. So this is the thing that um, looms largest right now. Um, on our political scene. I'm just going to read a whole bunch of them together so you can get a flavour, really, for, for what people are asking. And then I've got one that I'm going to finish with. So, um, will we lose the civil liberties that have been hard fought for from Europe if we leave? Why was there a 50-50 referendum over something so profoundly important as leaving the EU? Um, what will actually happen if there is a no deal? What's the difference between a deal and a no deal? Um, some of these um, points, oh, this is a good one. Um, with the Royal College of Nurses starting a campaign around safe staffing levels, how do we find staff to fill posts with Brexit affecting the number of people um, who are available? And then would Jesus vote Brexit? That's the little one for you. <laughs> uh, Brexit has polarised the UK in a way we've never seen this before. Can this be repaired or are we destined for a US style of politics where we are divided down the middle into two very large groups? Um, and also, should we encourage people to be able to express that they've changed their mind, um, which seems pretty relevant to what's going to happen in the next few weeks? Um, and I guess the, the question just to end up those section of Brexit questions, really. Um, what role can the church play in healing the divide? So we've talked about that being maybe one of the standout features and pieces of learning from the last couple of years. Um, what is it that, what role should the church play in response to that? It's not an easy question, I appreciate. Um, that's a lot of questions. Um, I think um, definitely the 50-50, I feel, especially learning a bit more about referendums around the world, that, that often they're not 50-50. I think that's something that should have been considered. But when we did talk about that this just beforehand, um, oh, I was told, well, that is what, what someone who is disappointed with the result who voted Remain would feel. But, but, um, but I would also advocate that if we... Um, if we are, if we achieve a people's vote, that the, the, that needs to be considered. Um, you know, how much of a win does one side need to achieve for it to be accepted? Um, would would Jesus vote Brexit? Um, with, uh, with my one answer, I'd say no. <laughs> but um, but again, I think sitting here, we would all like to think that we are kind of um, representing Jesus and. 
but and we'll probably have different answers. So yeah, I think. Uh, oh, oh, cool. So can we? Do we all say that? <laughs> See, I, I would, as showing my own bias to the table, I would probably argue that Jesus would be a passionate Remainer because Jesus was an internationalist and a collaborator and an inclusionist. But do you know what? Actually, if I put lay my bias aside for a moment, I think that Jesus wouldn't have asked the question because Jesus wouldn't ask you to go to a polling station and entirely put your whole identity and your whole being and tag it as a mass to a tree and ask your neighbours to go and tag their identity and their being to a different tree and ask us all to live within these camps forevermore and expect to be a functioning society. I think Jesus would have reminded us that love is love. Can I just come in on that one point? I, I don't think Jesus would have voted for Brexit, but then I don't think he would have voted to be part of the EU either because Jesus believes in one world, one God, and anything that makes a division over that is wrong. So I don't think Jesus would actually have encouraged any kind of nation, state, of whatever size, be it a small, single state or a multi-state organisation. He would say that you know we should love all people and that we're all brothers and sisters, and that we shouldn't have states. In fact, he probably wouldn't even want politicians, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> he was, however, surrounded by them um, in his own day. Um, there's two other questions here that I just want to touch on before, as, as a way of wrapping up. Um, someone who asked a question about, as Christians living in a world God has asked us to look after, how high up the political agenda do you think environmental issues should be? And another one that asks about um, the, how genuine is, was um, Labour and Corbyn's attempt to engage young people around the last election, or was it kind of a political expediency? But um, let me bring those two questions together for you. Um, I would say if you polled people under the age of 25, you would find that the environment, climate chaos, um, ranked pretty highly on their list of concerns. And... Last week, we saw um, loads of young people coming out on strike around um, environmental issues. And so I guess as we, we're kind of stuck at the moment in this terrible political scenario as a country, but as we look forward, um, how do we engage young people, listen to young people? What kind of hope are we offering um, in terms of a vision of what we should care about, what society should be? Um, because most young people who are going to vote in the coming up for the next general election, they haven't had any choice at all in Brexit, and yet it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. So how can we engage young people in politics? Um, firstly, by not assuming all young people care about the same things. Young people are people. Many of them may be passionate Remainers. Many of them may be passionate environmentalists. Many of them may not. And I think we get into the danger zone where we prescribe a whole set of ideologies to people based on their demographic. You know, not all women are feminists. Not, you know, we, we should be careful about these sweeping generalisations. But Labour's outreach to young people is probably even more out young people's outreach to the uh, Corbyn-led Labour Party last time than a deliberate political strategy. And it was genuine, and it was amazing. I have trodden the doorsteps on countless elections for, you know, nearly two decades, and... Honestly, polling day can feel like you're dragging people out to vote, you know, which is pretty, if you believe in people having their say and you, uh, you, know, and you believe in a, a parliamentary democracy, is pretty grim experience. Um, 
But there were people who hadn't even registered to vote, young people chasing us down the streets on polling day saying, I want to vote, how can I vote? And I have never felt more uplifted and energised. Um, and if we, you know, if the Labour Party don't continue to engage in that and if all political parties don't take a step back and go, fantastic, please let us, you know, listen to your views and your agenda, then you know, we'd all be extremely foolish is that these people are the future. I think on the environmental stuff, it's just, you know, it's just structural and institutional negligence that we talk about it so little and massive snaps to, is it Greta, the wee girl who incidentally is on the autism spectrum who has been leading this, you know, school's uh, walkout marches. She's a, certainly an inspiration to my daughter Bess, who's eight, who is, you know, becoming energised by watching role models uh, like that. So, yeah, all power to the elbow. Thank you. I am going to call a halt to, um, to us there, Claire. Thank you for that answer. I know these guys are desperate to say more, so do come and ask them after the service. But um, I'm going to pray for you before we finish. God, thank you that we have um, the example of Jesus who wasn't afraid to engage with the powers, with the systems, to, um, to speak truth when it was needed um, and to um, bring about change in all kinds of ways. So I thank you for these three today, for Claire, for Keith, for Candice, and for the work that they do um, that follows in Jesus' footsteps in engaging um, with political systems and in bringing about change. Um, I pray for each of them in their work um, that you would give them real wisdom and grace, um, and also a heart for justice that um, is always seeking for your kingdom and um, good for the world around them and for each other. And I pray for us as a congregation. I pray that same prayer for us, that we would know grace um, in our conversations with each other, that we would know um, mercy towards those who disagree with us or who think differently and that we'd have a passion for justice, for your kingdom, and for seeing change um, in the world in which we live. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit www.oasiswaterloo.org. 